You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. And welcome to episode 117 of the Common Descent Podcast. Today we are discussing crabs. Crabs and also maybe some things that are kind of crabs? Yeah, we're going to talk about crabs and carcinization. How do you get things that look like crabs? Ooh, with special guest Clancy Brown. <laughs> no, that would have been cool though. Oh man. Yeah, I was hoping that he would manifest yes, next to us. Yes, uh, if we believed, if oh. we truly believed. Well darn. Well, this episode... <laughs> <laughs> Without any special guests, we will be discussing crabs, the group known as true crabs, but also the concept of how do we get crab-shaped things, because that's happened more than once. Right. When you think of crabs, you're thinking of probably a much vaster group than are actually technically crabs. Which is also a very vast group. Yeah. <laughs> so we will discuss what are crabs? What? Where do they fall in the groups of animals? How did they come to be? What's their diversity? But we'll also discuss how do a lot of these things that we call crabs, why are they also looking very crabby when they're not in that group? And what are some of the details of this concept? Because this is actually, a, um, the term crab gets a lot messier the closer you look at it mm. because of this trend. So we'll discuss a little bit about the complications of this concept of carcinization, which has been sweeping the internet. Yeah, the internet's <laughs> been really big for a couple of years, it sounds like, mm -hmm. on the idea. I know there's been an, uh, at least one Eons and at least one SciShow episode yep. about things evolving into crabs, and it's become a lot of memes, mm -hmm. this process of carcinization. Yep, the, the one I keep seeing is return to monkey or evolve to crab. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, it sounds from what you're saying like it is a messier concept than it first seems. Yeah, it, it gets real interesting the closer you look at it. Now the reason we're discussing this is because it's awesome, but also because it was requested. This episode was requested by Mark, Sam, Alexander, Stephen, Dork Apocalypse, and Felix. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. I, this was a lot of fun to learn about, so thank you very much. I'm excited to hear about Crabs from Will. <laughs> but before we get into the discussion and our episode, some quick announcements. First up on our announcements, we have a Patreon. We sure do. We get money. We get money from our generous supporters that funds the podcast top to bottom, lets us upgrade our stuff, sit in some comfy chairs we now have. Oh, yeah. And if you join us on Patreon to support us at a certain level, we like to thank you by shouting your name out on the podcast. Very quietly. Very quietly. Very mic-friendly shouting. <laughs> so this episode, we'd like to welcome to our Patreon and thank... Danielle, Lewis, Varen, Brett, Phil, Ben, and Kylie. Wow. Yeah. So much generosity. Thanks. <laughs> Remember in the early days of our Patreon, back in like 2017, where every now and then we'd announce like one new Patreon? Yeah, like, oh, hey, thanks, Bill. Yeah, thank you. All right. <laughs> now it's ton. Thank you so much to everybody. It's, it really is overwhelming when I was putting this list together. And every time this happens, just like, gee, another, another one? Yep. That's more and more. so cool. If you're a patron, not only do you get this benefit, but there's other benefits. Yeah. We release uh, bonus audio content. We put up director's notes mm -hmm. these days after each episode, so check it out. Absolutely. Speaking of extra stuff, 
You can also check out the main feed for the recent Silver Screen Sciences we just did. Yeah, we did a double feature in June. Yes, where we talked about the movies Lake Placid and Anaconda. Crocs and snakes. Guys, for no particular reason. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're a patron, we release bonus audio in addition to those discussions about our film thoughts. Additional bonus. Bonus, 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 bonus stuff. All the way down. (laughs) Now we can close out the announcements... And that leads us into the news section. News time. Every episode, we like to gather up some of the recent scientific newses dealing with paleontology, evolution, biology, earth sciences. Keeps us all up to date together on what's going on in the scientific world. So to start us off, David, what is the news? Well, since this episode is dedicated to arthropods, my first bit of news is an arthropod bit of news. Cool. About some ancient beetles in some poop. A, where they belong. Where where, uh, some of them belong. (laughs) This is uh, research that has decided a new species of beetle from the poop of something that wasn't quite a dinosaur. Okay. Yeah, which is part of why it made it in the news, because the word dinosaur is in the title. (laughs) This is research by Martin Kornstrom et al. in the journal Current Biology. And in the blog post, we will link to an article, a press release, in phys.org via Cell Press. Coprolites are the fossilized remains of feces. We talked about those at length in episode 30, and we've talked about them in the news quite a bit. Coprolites can sometimes be little treasure troves of information, especially about diets of ancient animals. This research examined a coprolite from the Triassic period, around 230 million years ago, that is thought to have belonged, which is to say to have been produced by, a type of animal called Silosaurus which is a dinosauriform. Uh, I, I believe there's been some discussion in the past about where this animal fits, but currently it is classified as a near-dinosaur, not quite a dinosaur. This was uh, around the time of the very earliest true dinosaurs. Only nearly a dinosaur. Only close. Inside the poop were beetles. This is exciting because, apparently, most beetles found back in the Triassic period are flattened fossils with very little preservation. Apparently, insect fossils are not super abundant from the Triassic period. Here, they are preserved in this coprolite in various states of articulation, but a lot of them are preserved in three dimensions. Some of them are nearly complete, and some of them even preserve fine details of the legs and the antennae. Oh. So these, this is like treasure trove of really well-preserved beetle fossils. <laughs> it's it's just poop instead of amber. <laughs> and, and, and yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. I was about to say, throughout the paper, they say what's striking about this is the preservation is about as good as amber, <laughs> which is the most famous place where we get uh, a fossil insects often preserved. Episode 62 for more about amber stuff. Given the exquisite preservation, they were able to identify a new genus and species of beetle, Triamyxa coprolithica. Hey, that's (laughs) fantastic. The poop beetle. Uh, In the family Triamyxidae, of which this is currently the only member. Oh. A whole new branch of beetles. These are, according to the paper, the first insects ever described, like as a new species, from a coprolite. Well, they say from a vertebrate coprolite. Uh, but that might just be them hedging their bets. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there are a whole lot of invertebrate coprolites to identify insects from. Yep. They did some phylogenetic comparisons to see where these beetles fit on the beetle family tree. 
And their analysis suggests they're part of a group called Myxophaga, which is a small group of beetles with a very sparse fossil record. So this is very exciting to find. The species in the ancient poop is, in terms of its anatomy, very similar to some of its modern relatives in that group, including not only their small size and the features of their body, but the fact that they are found in large numbers. There are lots of them found together, which the authors suspect might mean these ancient beetles lived similar lifestyles to the modern relatives near water, often associated with algal mats. Oh. So like crawling around in the algae and stuff like that. In fact, they suspect that these beetles might have been accidentally eaten. Oh. So maybe this animal was eating the algae and caught a bunch of beetles. Of course, it could also mean that it was eating, it could be eating beetles. Yeah. But the fact that the beetles are, a lot of them are very broken up, suggests that they were in fact eaten, not that they just burrowed into the poop afterwards. Okay, see, that that's what I've been wondering this yep. whole time. Because when you first said beetles and poop, and I said that where they belong, I was thinking dung beetles. No, no, be- <laughs> the authors point out, not only are there lots of broken, uh, disarticulated beetle specimens, but there's no sign of burrows or traces of them moving through it. It seems they were eaten, digested, and pooped out the other end. Which makes more sense since dung beetles, the whole thing they're doing is decomposing the poop, like getting rid of it. Right. So you'd have to fossilize it real quick right after they get there. And we've seen that. Mm -hmm. We discussed that in episode 30. There have been dung beetle fossils uh, discovered, or at least I think it was coprolites with beetle burrows in them. Yes. And I think at least one that had a partial dung beetle within it. Regardless, this tells us something uh, not only about these beetles, but also about the animal that ate them and its diet. What's really exciting about this, going back to the amber point, is that amber is one of the best sources of information about fossil insects, but the oldest reliable sources of amber are in the Cretaceous. Yes about 100 million years later than these beetles. This is proof, proof of concept, that coprolites can be a really good source of finding well-preserved insect fossils. And the authors even suggest that if we are able to continue exploring ancient coprolites, we can get a sense of, are there more well-preserved insects? Is this a good source of learning about ancient insects? And they make the delightful point that we might discover that certain animal coprolites are better sources of insects than others. The preservation quality coprolites. <laughs> yeah, preservation quality and also the animals that are catching yep. insects. Like ichthyosaur coprolites are not probably not going to have a lot of insects <laughs> in them. But yeah, if you're getting these little uh, possibly insectivorous or omnivorous animals, ah, you could have some real good bugs in there. Cool. That's such a cool finding because, like, finding food in poop is is pretty standard for coprolites. That's where food goes. But finding well-preserved food is is not something you typically think about. Yeah, it's not something that we personally want in our lives. No, no, that's, that's always a little disconcerting. <laughs> Something's wrong with the pipes. <laughs> <laughs> this is like your... <laughs> this is the equivalent of, of it's beetle corn. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> you're able to actually identify a new beetle and potentially information about both the diet of the animal that ate them and maybe the behaviors of this beetle. 
Yeah. That's a lot of information from a single poop. Yeah. It's a pretty cool study. Awesome. Well, speaking of learning about the behaviors of things that are like dinosaurs, in this case, dinosaurs. Okay. My next bit of news is about evidence that seems to say Arctic dinosaurs were indeed nesting and raising young in the north and not migrating out. Oh, we've talked about this before. Yeah, we discussed this heavily in our, our Arctic and Antarctic life episode. Right, that we know there were dinosaurs up in the Arctic, but there's been discussion about how many of them were living their whole lives there. Mm -hmm. Were they migrating south for the winter? Stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. And there's been evidence that seems to suggest some species, at least, were staying in the Arctic through winter. Because basically your options are either you have to weather the harsh northern winter or leave it, go south. And this seems to suggest they were hanging out up there. Mm. This is research by Patrick Drunkenmiller et al. in Current Biology. And the article is by Isaac Schultz in Gizmodo. So this is a fossil site up in far north Alaska. They said basically like north, you're, you're in the Arctic Circle, I believe, uh, at this point, or very close to it, along a riverbank, the digging into a riverbank and found numerous fossils. It was evidently a very rich fossil site dating back to late Cretaceous, about 70 million years ago. And they found dinosaur remains, some of which seem to suggest that they were raising young here. So just to set the stage of where we are, at this time, 70 million years ago, things would have been warmer. So we would not have been Arctic the way we think of it today, like frozen over all the time. But winter still would have reached near or just below freezing. And you still would have had better part of the half of your year dark. In, in episode 114, we talked about those polar conditions where even in the warmest time periods in Earth, the North and South Poles still aren't getting a lot of sunlight, and you're still real cold, and in the winter, real dark. Yes. So, the question is, were these dinosaurs hanging out during that dark cold time, or were they leaving? And one of the big things a lot of researchers have looked at to try to gain weight on one side or the other, or try to confirm, is, are there babies? Because right. if you're giving birth up there, it's hard to migrate with a newborn, you know, only months old young. That's not something that animals that do migrate typically do. So if we're finding evidence of mating and breeding and baby animals in those northern reaches, that's a potentially good sign that they're hanging out and raising the young up there. So to look for that, they took dirt samples from the riverbank and screened them. A fine screen filtering the dirt down to objects about half a centimeter in diameter. Okay. Uh, which I thought it was cool. We got the size of it. Yeah. Looking for th this version of microfossils the same way we do at the Gray Fossil Site. And just like at the Gray Fossil Site, they actually described it almost verbatim the way we describe it on tours. <laughs> they then take the dirt a spoonful at a time under a microscope and look at it grain by grain. Yep. Because that's how you do it. And look for tiny fossils. And they found them. Specifically, perinatal dinosaur bones and teeth. Wow. Bitty, bitty, baby bones and teeth of tiny dinosaurs. Ooh. Which is direct evidence of baby dinosaurs up north. Like, here are the remains of them. Now, due to the nature, the bones are not able to really help identify the babies. Right. They're not fully formed. Yeah. Either. The teeth could get them to general groups and help a little bit there. And they've yet to find eggs, you know. But 
they made the point in the article that surely baby dinosaurs are better evidence of reproducing <laughs> than eggs. <laughs> like, so this is pretty, pretty good, solid evidence that they were giving birth up north in Arctic reaches, which leans toward that they're not then immediately walking miles and miles and miles with these newborn babies right. and, or that they didn't walk miles and miles and miles with them to get there yeah exactly you know, they're not going back and forth and they emphasize this is not just barely in the arctic it's way up there so this is fully cold weather for the cretaceous right this isn't like toronto yeah exactly this is way up into alaska extreme north so it seems dinosaurs were settling these areas, not just moving in and out of them. At least some of them. They also made the point that they found other dinosaur fossils there from various ages. So it's not just adults moving in. It's a wide age range of uh, animals. Not geologic range ages, but like baby to yes. young to a little older to adult. Absolutely. Which seems to suggest that you're getting, you're spending different sections of your life mm-hmm. in this area, perhaps all of the sections of your life. Yes. Uh, they also found a wide variety of dinosaurs, uh, duckbills and uh, carnivorous dinosaurs as well. And then the other reason this is interesting, the other part of the question of were dinosaurs hanging out in the Arctic is if they were, was part of what might have allowed them to live up there, the fact that they were endothermic, that right. they were warm-blooded. Maintaining their own body heat to survive. Because... Up where you're describing it is a place that today you don't find reptiles. No. And they make that point at the fossil site. The only other animals they find other than dinosaurs are warm-blooded things like birds and mammals. No amphibians, no reptiles, nothing else that would be relying on the environment to keep them warm. And they're even screening the sediment. Yes. So they should be finding those tiny bones if those animals were there. That's something, you know, it's very common for a dinosaur fossil site to not find evidence of frogs and snakes and lizards because the way they're excavating the site is only targeting big bones and you're missing all the tiny stuff. This site is screening for tiny stuff. So if it's there, you should be finding that evidence. It should be hard to miss at this point. Yep. So this finding seems to both add support to warm-blooded dinosaurs, which has become more common in the years, uh, but also... A little bit more support that, yeah, they weren't migrating out of the north. We had Arctic dinosaurs, truly Arctic dinosaurs. A very cool finding. Also, I am super intrigued by the thought of screening for dinosaurs. Right? Like screening sediment, because I'm so accustomed to the idea of screening being for the little, you know, birds, snakes, lizards, frogs, salamanders, and rodents and stuff like that. I It, it had not occurred to me in my brain that you could screen for tiny dinosaur mm-hmm. remains that's a very cool approach yeah it's, i had that same moment when they were like we started screening i was like for what right <laughs> <laughs> well that's some cool work those paleontologists are doing and hey speaking of paleontologists who are of course humans my next bit of news is about humans hey there you go uh if you've been on the internet recently you may have heard about the so-called dragon man <laughs> there is a, a skull that has not been discovered, but recovered from a, a, an earlier discovery of an ancient human or human close thing, ancient hominin that has took the news cycle by storm for about a day 
uh, because it has it nicknamed Dragon Man, and it has a bunch of potential implications for our understanding of early-ish uh, relatives of ourselves. Hmm. So, well, let's talk about it. This, okay, so this is a lot. There, there's, there's a whole lot. There are three different papers that were released in the same journal on the same day. Because descri- this is what happens when you have a cool new skull yes. of, of an ancient human thing. Three papers in the journal The Innovation. One by Shijun Ni et al. Another by Qingfeng Shao et al. And a third by Qiang Ji et al. There are many news articles about this, but we will link in the blog post to the one by Bruce Bauer in Science News. The Skull, uh, nicknamed Dragon Man, is a complete male human cranium, so the top part of the skull, like without the lower jaw, found near Harbin City in northeastern China. The story of the discovery is a complex one. The story goes that it was discovered in 1933 by a construction worker during the construction of Dongjiang Bridge, who supposedly hid it from the Japanese who were occupying the site, and it was re-emerged in 2018. Now, I have seen different versions of this story on different sites. Uh, The simple version is descendants of this construction worker heard about it and brought it to a museum, one version, I think this was in the Science Magazine article, described it that the man uh, uh, disclosed its location on his deathbed to his <laughs> grandchildren, but that's inconsistent with the story I read somewhere else. So I don't know. one way or another, the skull came back. It was donated to the Hebei GEO University, where researchers were finally able to examine it. It is, like I said, a cranium that is similar to modern humans, but not quite modern humans. Okay. So it's quite large with a bunch of unusual features, including the shape of the brain case, big molars, and the eye sockets, which were described as almost square-shaped. Huh. Oddly shaped eye sockets. One of the papers is dedicated to dating the remains, because we don't know where it came from, because it was dug up by someone and hidden for decades and decades, Isotope analysis links it to the geologic formation that is near Harbin, which matches the story, which ranges from about 138,000 to about 309,000 years old, and uranium series uh, radiometric dating says it is a minimum of 148,000 years old. So we're looking probably somewhere between 150 and 300,000 years during the Middle Pleistocene. There are lots of hominin remains found in Asia during this time. One of the other papers is dedicated to figuring out who it is related to. They uh, analyzed all of the features of the skull and compared it to other Asian Middle Pleistocene homo skulls. They found their analysis places Dragon Man as the sister to Homo sapiens, the closest relative to Homo sapiens, which is odd because Neanderthals are normally resolved as the closest relative to Homo sapiens. Yeah. Neanderthals plus Denisovans. So if that's the case, then this is an even closer cousin of ours. At the same time, they found their cluster, their, their phylogenetic analysis, puts it very similar to a jawbone from Xiaohe Cave, which is thought to possibly be Denisovan. Oh. And indeed 
many people online, including some of the authors, are very excited about the possibility that this cranium might be a Denisovan skull. Oh! A little bit of refresher on that. Denisovans are an ancient lineage of hominins, very closely related to Neanderthals, which together are very closely related to Homo sapiens, ourselves, but Denisovans are known almost entirely from genetic material. The only definite Denisovan bones we have are a pinky bone, some teeth, and a bit of skull from Denisova Cave, uh, which I think is in Siberia, if I remember correctly. So the fact that this might be a whole cranium of a Denisovan is very exciting. But so far, uh, they haven't tried getting DNA or proteins from the skull. So that'll presumably be further down the road, and that'll help us get some more information. But there are a lot of people who are pointing out possible inconsistencies in this analysis. One, they're figuring out who's related to who is based just on the morphology of the skull, where DNA would be much more helpful, potentially. Mm -hmm. And some people have also hopped in to point out that their results don't quite make sense. So, for example, if this is most closely related to us, but it's also potentially closely related to Denisovans, that doesn't fit our current understanding of the relationships between these different species. So there may be something that, you know, they're off about. Also, I saw one person uh, quoted in one of these articles as pointing out that the study says that the skull of Dragon Man is most similar to the jawbone of... Uh, uh, that found in Shaha Cave, and they point out that this new skull doesn't have a jawbone. Yeah, yeah. Now, I didn't get to go diving into the paper to find out if there is a solution to that potential problem, but point being, people are, this isn't a definite uh, uh, analysis of how this skull fits into the human family tree. Speaking of things that are a bit controversial, the third paper is dedicated to describing this skull as a new species. Mm-hmm. They name it Homo Longi, Dragon Man. Okay, I, I've been wondering. <laughs> yep. How did we know this was the Dova King? <laughs> <laughs> Long is the Mandarin word for dragon, and they named it Homo Longi. Um, I, I think that comes from a name of the province where it was found or That's, something like yeah. that. Um, but they are saying this is, uh, uh, we have identified this as a new species, which, of course, not everybody is on board with. Uh, especially with human stuff. some uh, A lot of people have been quoted in a lot of articles as saying, all we have is the one skull. It's very similar to a lot of other skulls across Asia. It might be premature to identify it as a new species. Also, the fact that we don't know where it came from specifically means that it's a bit iffy. Also, the fact that we're not yet sure about its relationships to other humans, give the discussion that I just mentioned. One of the author's of the other two papers <laughs> has been quoted as saying that he's not totally on board with identifying it as a new species. He thinks it might uh, link with Dolly man, which has been named as Homo daliensis, which is another Asian uh, hominin skull. There's a whole lot of discussion surrounding this skull and the papers that came out about it. But regardless, we have a cool new skull with some interesting, unusual features that as we continue to study it, whether it's a new species or not, will contribute probably some really exciting stuff to our understanding of what humans and our cousins were doing in Asia during the Middle Pleistocene. Especially exciting given that even with all those uncertainties, 
this could be a Denisovan skull. Yes. That's, which is real exciting. Very cool. That's fast. It is crazy sometimes how intense ancient human stuff can get when a new thing like this is discovered. Yep. Because few things get us more riled up than our history. Yeah. And, and, we, and we've got so much resolution yes. in human evolution that it means that we, our science, like many sciences, makes a habit of quibbling over details. Mm-hmm. We have so many details. Yes. And so there's a lot of quibbling. We can, we can actually get real nitty gritty with human evolution, uh, more so than we can get in other groups sometimes. Very cool. Now, uh, this bit of news is already a bit lengthy, but I do want to make an additional note. This, this has been a bit of a confusing story to uh, follow. Because it came out the same day as another ancient hominin discovery <laughs> of similar, if not quite as uh, headline-worthy uh, discussion, two papers in Science came out that describe archaeological evidence of a group of people at the Nesher Ramla site in Israel around 120,000 years ago. These papers describe a collection of bones and tools that seem to be a population that might be related to the ancestors of Homo sapiens and Neanderthals and appear to be a population of surprisingly late-surviving, archaic Homo from the Middle Pleistocene. And the fact that they have advanced tools suggests they might have been interacting with Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. So this is evidence of an unknown population of some kind of cousin of us and Neanderthals that made it in the Middle East longer than maybe we expected and was possibly still interacting with us. Cool. And I wanted to mention that one because it's also very cool. And if you have been trying to learn about ancient hominin stuff over the sort of week before we're recording this, the the last week of June, you may have gotten your wires crossed Mm -hmm. like I did looking at two different exciting new hominin studies. (laughs) Wow, that's a that's a lot of ancient people in a week. Yeah, someone should make a whole podcast about just hominin stuff. Yeah, that would be a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of ancient people, less ancient. Okay. Uh, my next news is also about a human. All right, hey, we're all about humans today. One in particular, uh, and a accident that befell them. Oh. With the help of a shark. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> The help. (laughs) help Uh, In quotation marks, I assume. (laughs) The shark helped the accident to happen. (laughs) This is about a 3,000-year-old shark attack on a person. Oh, man. (laughs) Tell me more. This is research by Alyssa White et al. in the Journal of Archaeological Science Reports. And the article is by Michelle Starr in Science Alert. This is a man who lived 3,000 years ago. This was a man. This was a man (laughs) whose remains were found near Seto Island in the sea of the Japanese archipelago, that seems to be the result of a shark attack. Now, they didn't know that at first. This victim... (laughs) um, (laughs) This dinner... (laughs) ...was discovered earlier in the 20th century. So they found a little while back. And at first, they didn't have an explanation for the injuries, really. Like, they couldn't explain them. On this person's body, there are 790 deep serrated cuts and injuries. Wow. All over. Someone had to count that. Yep. None of them show any signs of healing, which strongly suggests that whatever caused these cuts was fatal. 
Right. Or it either happened near or shortly after the death of this uh, person. Absolutely. Most of the entries are on the arms and legs and chest region of the person. But here's where it gets interesting. The remains were in a burial site. Mm. Buried in a communal area. So the person was brought back and buried. They were not lost to whatever caused this back when they were first examining it. And they had ruled out that it was human conflict because none of the markings matched the stone tools of that time. Right. You know, things that would be caused by human attack or damage. And it didn't match any of the common predators or scavengers in that area that they could that they looked at. Right. This this wasn't a bear or something. Exactly. Also, to add more to the confusion, uh the left hand and right leg were missing. Mm. But the left leg had was with the body but had been placed on top of the body. It was separated. Huh. And upside down in the burial site. It wasn't until more recently that someone got the idea that maybe it's a shark attack. Shark attacks are very rare in, in the archaeological record, but the wounds didn't seem to match anything else. So they went to the Florida Museum of Natural History, <laughs> who runs the Florida program for shark research. They're the ones that keep the really detailed list of global shark attacks. Like, gotcha. it's a top notch in the world for tracking shark encounters. And with that research, basically it came out pretty clearly. It's like, yeah, this looks like a shark attack. Now, they can't identify what shark uh, because the bites are so numerous and overlapping (laughs) that they can't get a shape or size of the jaw. This wasn't a bite. No. This This is many bites. Almost 800 tooth marks. Oh, yeah. Chomp, chomp, (laughs) chomp, chomp, chomp. So they can't say for sure. Most likely, given the area and situation, tiger or great white. Mm-hmm. It's a most likely culprits. Neither one is a shark you want to get bit by. Yep. Both are known to do stuff like this, which makes this the oldest known human shark victim ever. Cool. Yeah. So this is the oldest human on human shark attack on record so far. And for anyone out there that's concerned, they believe the person probably died quite quickly <laughs> <laughs> due to the number of bites and the fact that they reached bone that this person probably bled out almost immediately. Their femoral artery would have almost surely been cut. I wonder, we talked in episode 84 about how it can be very difficult to tell if there's damage on the bones, if it happened shortly before death, at death, or after death. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those fascinating, uh, there's a story here, a very interesting story of someone who was either killed by a shark, attacked by a shark, And then died of the injuries or died and then got bitten a bunch by a shark and like got some parts bitten off. And then whatever happened there, his buddies came and found him. Yes. And that's something they point out. The fact that this person's remains made it back to a communal burial site suggests potentially that they weren't alone or that there were people nearby when this happened. Yeah. So they may have been with a group or out fishing or something when this happened, but people were near enough to collect their remains, yeah. their body, without before they just were lost to the sea. Yeah, I would imagine that if this was someone who got chomped on and then left there, you'd see evidence of other scavenging, or mm-hmm. there might be more pieces missing if a shark had 
the opportunity to take its time. It was actually feeding on the person, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, very, ooh, what a, what, wow, wow, what a find. And then the last note, speaking of it being an awesome find, they were able to do evaluations on the bones and get detailed information on this individual to confirm that it was male, mm-hmm. that they were male, most likely middle-aged at okay. the time of death, lived around 1,370 to 1,010 BCE. Okay. And it does seem that the remains were recovered shortly after the encounter based on the condition before being put in the cemetery. So it was... Yeah, it wasn't left out there to decompose. Yeah, it was pretty quick after the bites were made. So a, a middle-aged male who living somewhere around 3,000 years ago after being attacked by a shark, was then quickly buried in the the communal graveyard. And their friends were kind enough to bring their leg with them. Yeah, left leg. It's like, hey, you're you're gonna need this in the afterlife, buddy. You forgot this. Yeah. <laughs> what a very rare and interesting discovery. Yeah, and they they made the point that this gives us some insights into the dangers of the the hunter gatherer lifestyle. That you know. This, this is a good reminder that, yeah, if you're having to go out and fish or dive for food, mm-hmm. uh, which we know people, you know, d- did, ancient peoples, uh, that, yeah, there's predators out there and there's this stuff the can happen. Even though it's not common to happen, yeah, it can and did. Add shark to the list of animals we have fossil evidence of ancient humans being eaten by. Yep. Uh, up there with... Hyena, as we discussed yep. <laughs> in 109, uh, and I think possibly in episode 112, and Croc, yep. which we have at least one specimen. Who's named for it. Ancient human <laughs> that got bit by a croc. <laughs> and with that, we can wrap up the news. Ooh, and... Speaking of animals that eat humans. Yes. <laughs> nah, if given a... the chance and if you're dead at the bottom of the sea. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we can now go to our main discussion about crabs. And discuss what exactly are our crabs? What do they include? Yeah, What's what, a crab? What is a crab? And, very importantly, what isn't a crab? Ah, but for later. <laughs> so usually for episodes like this, we'd start it by being like, so this is what this group is yeah here's what crabs are but boy does it feel silly to introduce the concept of crabs yeah you might have heard about them yeah crabs are one of the most successful arthropod groups and and they're just literally basically everywhere Mm -hmm. and every group of people has had interact like (laughs) it's hard to avoid crabs it's hard to not know what a crab is yes so it always feels a little ridiculous when we get to a group like crabs and they're like so have you ever heard of a crab? <laughs> let's explain what crabs are. But uh, I want you to explain what crabs are. But let's explain what crabs are. Because I have a lot of things in my head that I have the name crab. Yes. But I know there's nuance. So we are going to start with the true crabs. The, the real crabs. Known as true crabs. These are crustaceans, which are your major group of marine arthropods. These things include crabs, lobsters, crayfish, shrimp, but also things like krill, wood lice, barnacles, things like that. Inside crustaceans, we have the decapods, which we will discuss heavily during this episode because there are other groups within decapod other than crabs that are very close to crabs. This includes the 
big famous crustaceans, the crayfish, crabs, lobster, shrimp, stuff like that. Prawns. Ten, ten feet. Ten feet. Now, Decapod. they don't all only have ten feet. Of course. Uh, they can have up to 38 appendages. Wow. But ten of them, only ten of them are for walking. Oh. So hmm. only are only 10 are feet. What do you need 28 extra uh, appendages for? Those are under the tail of a lobster or shrimp that are allowed them to swim and uh, to move water and stuff. Those are those count as appendages. Interesting. I, I'm imagining like the little uh, uh, pseudopods on a caterpillar. Yeah. That are ki- that aren't really legs but they're using them for moving around. Yeah, if you look at the uh, if you think of a shrimp or a lobster in your mind with the kind of long front of the body, you know, the the ovalish front of the body and then long tail what we call the pleon mm-hmm. that has often little what look like flippers underneath it that just go and that's yeah. how shrimps swim around and then curling that tail is how they do that really quick backwards run away okay so those are those count as decapods and this group is massive there are roughly 15,000 species in this group wow in decapods alone in decapods alone wow Big, diverse group. So decapods, big deal for crustaceans. And then within the order decapod, we get to the infra-order Brachyura, which are the true crabs. Mm. These are grouped with lobsters in a group known as Reptantia, which are the walking decapods. Okay. All right. So crabs and lobsters, crabs on one side. Yes. And the Brachyura as are typically called the true crabs, are characterized by that very crabby shape of a stout, compressed body, the basic absence of a tail, which has actually been folded under the body. Right. Brachyura, mm-hmm. short tail. So that if you picture a lobster in your head, and then take that front of the body where the, the shell is solid and not sectioned like the back of the tail, scrunch it up to make it kind of oval, but in the other way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Turn it so that it's squat and wider. And then take that tail and shorten it up and then tuck it under the body. That's what happens to this crab shape. Gotcha. So they just sort of have this puck-shaped body mm-hmm. with legs off to the side. Yes. And then the tail is, st- the structure of the tail is still there, but it's no longer acting like a tail. Interesting. This group is also very diverse. There were about 15,000 species in decapod. Right. Almost half of those are true crabs. Wow. 7,000 species in in 98 families. Wow. There are more crabs than there are mammals. Yes. Crabs are ridiculously diverse and successful. They are the most diverse group of crustacean. Which is saying something. Which is saying something. That's like being the most diverse group of insects. That's, That's quite a title. Yeah. And they're found everywhere. Every ocean... Tropical to Arctic, marine, most are definitely marine, but they make their way into freshwater. Mm -hmm. They make their way on land. Yep. (laughs) Crabs are everywhere. (laughs) Now, due to this diversity and the fact that morphologically, many of them have either gotten real weird or very similar, the relationships are often very complicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, Who's related to who is not always clear. But there are four or five main sections, depending on how you count it, that they're typically grouped into, with most of that diversity grouped within the Eubrachyura. The true, true crabs. Truest of true crabs. (laughs) Now, briefly, wanted to go over some of the diversity of crabs. Now, usually we would go, like, group by group or something, or go through some of the major notable 
But 7,000. Yeah. I list every species. Yep. <laughs> this is going to be a, a six-hour episode. So let's go through some of the cool lifestyles and morphotypes and some of the interesting crabs that at least jumped out to me. I'm sure there are cool crabs out there that I won't mention. Oh, yeah. Dear listeners, uh, uh, name your favorite crab that we don't mention. Please. I would love to get that <laughs> list. Now, marine crabs are definitely the go-to crab. Yeah. Uh, ocean crabs. Most crabs are saltwater ocean crabs. They go everywhere from the beach to deep, deep down. And they live at basically every level of the water column because they're found in the depths, mostly along the floor because they're walking. Mm. But there are swimming crabs. So the typical crab body plan, you have that kind of ovate, puck-like, compressed body with five legs on either side coming out, the front two which have been adapted into pincers and then four pairs of walking legs behind that with some crabs the back pair has been modified into paddles for swimming for swimming yeah and a lot of insects have that too there are like swimming beetles where some of the legs have been adapted that way and other crustaceans have done that absolutely many of the swimming crabs are known from the family portunidae and that fifth pair has become wide and very paddle-like and they're able to swim through the water column, they still, they swim in interesting ways very often, swimming side to side much of the time. Right. Which, they're, they're not shaped like a fish. No. That's a weird body shape to be, well, they swim weird like we do. Yes. We're yes. not really built for that. Yeah, we flail in organized fashion, <laughs> uh, which just to mention the movement of crabs, people often think of crabs walking side to side mm -hmm. and that that's how crabs walk. And that is a way many crabs walk, but crabs can also walk forward. Many, many of them can walk forward. Many can do both. So like th the side crab walk is not the crab walk. Right. It's just very common based on the way their legs move. They can move very quickly side to side, but they still often can still walk forward or backward. Walking side to side is also, I imagine, a very handy tool where your weapons are up front. Mm -hmm. And if you have to deal with a competitor or a threat, you can move while always facing the danger. Yeah. So it's it's a very common movement, but not the only one. But at least from what I've seen with many swimming crabs, it is a very common way for them to swim. I've even seen one video of one that they, they will angle their arms, their, their claws to to better accommodate which direction they're swimming. Huh. And so they'll adjust their positioning of their arms and legs depending on which way they're swimming, which is cool. These are found in many groups. The blue, the famous blue crab that we find here uh, in like the the south of the U.S. That Delicious. Are, that are very tasty are <laughs> counted in swimming crabs. Okay. And many of these are actually predatory, like swimming and catching stuff as they swim. So, like, actively swimming predatory crabs, not just swimming to get to A to B. And are they using their pincers to catch stuff? Yes, long, sharp claws. Nice. Which I can attest to when my dad got grabbed by a blue crab. Ooh. Uh, yep. He was trying to show it to me, and he was holding it by the back, and my cousin looked up and saw how he was holding it and just went, don't jerk. And my dad went, what do you mean? And then it grabbed him, and he jerked. And when you jerk, it tears instead of yeah. just pinches. Yep. Ugh. So, don't jerk. Oops. Now, speaking of crabs going places, we don't typically expect them. Crabs in space. Space crabs. Freshwater crabs. Oh, yeah. There we are have those. actually lots of groups of freshwater crabs. And something that's very interesting about them is they very often are exclusively freshwater. 
So they're not going back and forth. No, not even into brackish water oftentimes. Huh. Strictly fresh. They have adapted fully to freshwater environments and don't leave them. I found it listed in one article that there are more than 1,300 species of freshwater crabs. So even the freshwater crabs are <laughs> extremely diverse. <laughs> even when they come up onto land and the insects are like, mm, <laughs> I, we had an agreement. Yes. <laughs> the treaty we between we, land and sea. We don't go in the water. <laughs> there are at least five families of freshwater crabs, which seem to represent two different lineages. Okay, two different origins of yeah. moving on land. The South American freshwater crabs, and then the remaining families, which are found worldwide. So it seems that the South American freshwater crabs are their own lineage, their own origination of freshwaterness. And then you have find them the rest of the way around the world, and those are all seem to be similar origin. Hmm. And then as we move farther away from the sea, encroaching on the insect's territory. Space. Terrestrialization. Yeah, there are land crabs. Land crabs. Lots of them. One video said that there's at least seems to be five separate origins for trustiality. But that video was also talking a bit more generally with the term crab. So maybe not within true crabs. But there are true crabs that are terrestrial. Uh, One of the weird things with this is there is no distinction between sometimes terrestrial, semi-terrestrial, semi-aquatic, terrestrial, because there's just this gradient with a lot of crabs. Some spend basically all their time on land. Some can come on land, but spend lots of their time in water. Some can be comfortable in both. It's very diverse how much time they spend on land. Uh, but there are some that have become what you many people would call truly terrestrial in the fact that they can't go back into the water without threat of drowning. Oh. Like, there are some members that can't really be dropped into water Like, they will potentially drown if they get cast back out to sea. Wow. The tortoises of the crab world. Yes. But many of them, not all of them, but very commonly, they still have to return to the water to breed. Right. I was going to say, I imagine they still have to lay eggs in water. Yes. And they'll usually release them, spawn them out into the water. And this is where you get famous things like the Christmas Island crabs that Mm -hmm. march across the island to all release their eggs in the water. But they do it while clinging to rocks. Right, holding on for dear life. Yes, because if they get caught by a wave, the mother will drown while releasing her eggs. Oh. Now, they achieve getting on a land a numerous number of ways. Some have created, have evolved versions of lungs to breathe. Others have modified gills, because uh, the issue with gills is they often collapse when brought out of the water, and the surface tension of the water just sticks them together. Mm-hmm. So some have shorter, stiffer, and gills with spacers to keep them from collapsing. Yeah. So they can continue to draw oxygen. And there are some that take it all even a step further. I did find at least one mention of a group of crabs, uh, the Geosesarma, that have direct development and don't even need to go back to the water to uh, release their eggs. So they're not metamorphosing. The eggs hatch and develop into little baby crabs Yeah. with the mother the whole time. Wow. So... Some don't even ever have to dip their toes in the water again. They'll still go back to drink. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But they don't need it to produce, to reproduce. Wow, that's fascinating. So crabs all over the place. We're covered in crabs. Yes, just everywhere. So far, this is uh, might be the tastiest episode of the Common Ascent podcast. I don't know that I could argue with that. This We made that joke a lot back in episode 16 when Mm -hmm. we talked about cephalopods. True. 
But um, if I'm if I'm given the choice, I'm taking crabs over squid. Oh, crabs over calamari every time. Yeah. Yep. Crab legs. Mm. Thank you, please. Mm. Sorry, crabs, but most of you aren't on land to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a compliment, really. Oh yeah, no, you're so you're just just my, my favorite thing to eat. <laughs> I like having a fight for it. Yes. No. Yeah. You I like food that it. hurts me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> now there are also some notable crabs. Like you get cool crabs, like the decorator crab, which sticks stuff all over its body to camouflage itself or defend yeah. itself. It's like the um, what are they? Bagworms. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. insects that do the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And my favorite thing when reading the description for the decorator crab so basically their armor is covered in little hooks that act like velcro that they can stick things to that's awesome uh at least is my understanding for some of them and often it'll be like pieces of plant or sometimes like uh a piece of sponge so sometimes it may be living organisms that they're putting on their body and is now going to travel with them and is often just so i look like the reef and i can hide but every now and then it's like i'm going to put this anemone on my back and if you mess with me it's gonna sting you (laughs) That's cool. <laughs> and they were like... That living armor. <laughs> there was one line that was saying, you know, they decorate themselves with sedentary organisms to camouflage themselves, or if the o- organism is noxious to scare away predators. Wow, that's so cool. <laughs> the kind of things you can do in the ocean. Yep. And you'll also get little weirdos like the arrow crab, which has a more triangular shaped body, and then a long rostrum where the nose would be if they had... A nose like us nose. that just sticks off like a spike and is super weird looking. Strange. Super weird. But I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Japanese spider crabs. Of course. So most crabs are, you know, small to medium-ish. Little. Little. Even the big beefy ones are usually like, you know, football size, regardless of which football you're thinking of. Right, right. Around that size. <laughs> That's a hefty crab. Japanese spider crabs are... One of the largest arthropods. <laughs> they are massive. As their name suggests, they are found in the waters around Japan. And they have the largest leg span of any arthropod, which means their legs can be reaching up to 3.7 meters in span, which is just over 12 feet. That is a way bigger number than I was expecting you to say. Massive. That's huge. So, like, and they have these long, spindly legs. Very long, spindly right? legs. That's the name, spider crab. And the body in the middle looks very small comparatively, but they still can get pretty big. The main body, the cephalothorax, as we call that section, can be up to 40 centimeters across or 16 inches. So, over a foot wide yeah. on the body. Football sized. Football sized. <laughs> And they can weigh up to 19 kilograms or 42 pounds. That's way too much. Which makes them only the second heaviest crustacean living arthropod as well after the American lobster, which gets a little bit heavier. Gotcha. Listen, arthropods, we had a deal. (laughs) We get big. Vertebrates get big. You you stay small. (laughs) We can't handle it otherwise. (laughs) To get this big, they actually go through three larval stages Wow, they're like a like a monster. Yes, in a movie that just keeps this. This isn't even my final form. <laughs> just keeps shedding and keeps getting <laughs> bigger. Uh, this group does contain multiple species, so it's not just the one. Uh, and you'll see these around aquariums. They're actually I've seen them very commonly as aquarium animals, yeah. uh, not home aquarium, but public aquariums. And due to their ridiculously long legs, they always just kind of look like they're moving in slow motion. 
under yes, the water. They, do. they don't scuttle quickly like other crabs. It's just this like stilt walking slow. Once again, looks like a movie monster because we film those in slow mo to make them look bigger. Yes, a, a spider crab is more than most animals waiting to have uh, horror movie music <laughs> put over footage of it. There is an image in my head of Japanese spider crabs and the image is in the corner of a tank. Yep. That I don't know where I got that image from, but when you say Japanese spider crabs, the first picture in my head is of this big thing with these long legs in the corner of an aquarium tank. But they still have relatively small claws, so they're not going around tearing things in half. They're just nibbling on stuff. Yeah, they're just taking long strides. Yes, they are striders. Now, we could talk about cool weird crabs all day. Let's do it. But, mm. but, mm. we should talk also about how did we get crabs. Okay, I want to hear that too. So let's talk about the evolution of crabs. Their evolutionary history. When did we get crabs? Now... Going back to the very beginning, decapods show up in the Ordovician about 455 million years ago. So when we see the earliest of them, those early members would have been very prawn-like, so shrimpy-shaped. Still with those long tails, longer, fusiform body. Jumping way forward to 252 million years ago, we hit the end Permian. We sure do, episode 45. And a bunch of stuff dies, 95% of it. Which then brings us into the Mesozoic, and after that giant mass extinction is when we start seeing decapods start to diversify like crazy during the Mesozoic, and therefore leads us into our crabby origins. Oh. Now this means this is all set within what is often called the Mesozoic Marine Revolution. Yeah, we've talked about that, usually in reference to vertebrate animals. Yes. This is a time when we see a uptick in shell-crushing feeding behaviors of predatory, marine predatory animals. Yeah, we get those uh, round teeth Mm -hmm. that we've talked about in ichthyosaurs last episode, but also in mosasaurs and other stuff. Which then obviously has an effect on the prey who are getting crunched. The hard-shelled things. And are having to respond in that predator-prey arms race. Well, it is during this marine revolution that we see decapods diversify like crazy. A rise in... Lobsters and shrimp and all of those shapes. This diversification is actually so well known that I've also seen it referred to as the Mesozoic Decapod Revolution. Wow. (laughs) Like, decapods go crazy. Now, many have also attributed this to that during this time, we see a rise in coral. Coral reefs as an environment, which is a popular habitat for many decapods. So whilst the Durophagus predators could be uh, one aspect that's affecting this. The fact that habitat that's really good if you're a crawling decapod has suddenly increased and new ones are showing up could also be a huge reason for this diversification. We see this start in the Jurassic, which is also when we see our first true crabs. The earliest agreed-upon true brachyurine crab is from the early Jurassic and is known as Eocarcinus. Now, this did not look like a crab the way we think of them today, typically. Its ancestors were very likely the more long-tailed lobster form, and then it gave rise to the short-tailed squat crab form. So it was not quite shaped like a crab, but it seems to be a true crab. Now, toward the end of the Jurassic, we do see a collapsing of the reefs, Mm. and there is a downtick in decapod diversity at that time as well, but not for long. 
as we move into the Cretaceous, Brachyura specifically, decapods in general, but Brachyura sees a major diversification. So much so that it is known as the Cretaceous Crab Revolution. (laughs) (laughs) I like how many cool things show up in the Cretaceous. Yeah. This is where flowers take off. It's where mosasaurs happened. So around 145 million years ago, crabs start diversifying and we see about 80% of the modern groups come into being. Whoa. So the Cretaceous is really when crabs got started. That's when the crabs, as we know them, came into popularity. By the end of the Cretaceous, crabs had become the most diverse decapod group and have remained so since then. So they reached the level they're at today back in the Cretaceous and then just never let go of the title. Very cool. Well, they held it in that pincer grip. Yep. And this is also when we see a lot of the diversity of crabs show up. Freshwater crabs, the earliest ones, show up in the Cretaceous. And some of the Cretaceous crabs got real diverse, as in super weird. We see a lot of new forms of crabs show up at this time. The most famous, Cali Chimera Perplexa. What a name. The Perplexing Beautiful Chimera. (laughs) (laughs) This is one that we've actually talked about on the podcast before in a news, because this is a recently discovered species of Cretaceous crab. This is Cretaceous, about 90 million years old. Very small little crab that was found at a site uh, with numerous specimens. I think there were like 70 specimens of the crab there. That just looks nothing like what you would think of when you think of a crab. They have these little fusiform bodies, not squat, but kind of hydrodynamic. They have large, bulbous, round eyes instead of the small, stocked eyes of most crabs. They do have claws, and they have swimming legs, like swimming crabs do, but instead of being the back pair, it's the front two pair. Hmm. And mouth parts that are thin and long and look almost leg-like. And when we say small, they mean about the size of a U.S. quarter. So like an inch or so around, depending on the size of the individual. Now, part of the reason this is perplexing is a lot of those features look like crab larvae. Oh. A lot of those things are things we see in crab larvae. So Crabs go through larval stages, just like most arthropods, and a lot of crab larvae are free-swimming. They're very shrimpy. They're planktonic. They've got a little tail. They're not shaped like a shrimp. They're shaped like what I just described here. (laughs) (laughs) They've got a little tail, and they've got these swimming legs and these big eyes and different mouth parts, but they've still got little claws up front because they're still hunting other plankton, but they are planktonic, which... Lines up with a lot of the body features here, except that these seem to be adults. Hmm. They seem to be sexually mature. Uh, The males have developed penises. The specimens also range in size, which seems to have young and older members. So it seems that this is the adult form, which is interesting evolutionarily. It seems to suggest that they may have retained those larval features into adult form through a process called heterochrony, which is when the stages of development are changed. The timing of developmental stages are shifted, usually due to genetic reasons. Right. We've talked about this before. I think we talked about this probably in episode 33 about ontogeny, that there is a trend we sometimes see in evolution that, depending on the scale you're looking at and who you're talking to, might be called neoteny Mm -hmm. or petamorphosis. Yep. The process of adult animals 
retaining juvenile features. So one of the most famous and common examples is salamanders that will be still aquatic, very larval-looking bodies, even while they get big and become adults and mature. This is something that has also been pointed out as a factor in human evolution, that our bodies, especially our giant heads and our flat faces, look a lot like the babies of other apes. So over the course of our evolution, by changing the order and pattern of development, we might have kept some of those baby features into our adult form in order to give us the, our en- enormous noggins with space for our big old brains. Our big baby heads. <laughs> so this sounds like a group of crabs that maybe did the same thing, that they were keeping a juvenile body form even as they grew up. Which really emphasizes how extreme this diversification was during the Cretaceous, that we were getting truly bizarre crabs during this time. It also suggests that some features like the large claws and swimming legs were present in crabs back 90 million years. Yeah, that's not a new thing. That's not a new thing, which means some groups that don't have that may have lost it. You know, that it may have been something that instead of everyone evolving to it separately, it may have been lost in some groups. So this gives some potential new ways to look at the Brachyura evolution in general. Interesting. Yeah, they they didn't evolve to swimming forms. Maybe they evolved from swimming forms or, you know, in some combination of that. And this does seem to be an active swimming predator, potentially nocturnal with how big its eyes are. Oh, cool. And it would have been living in tropical environments, which is where weird stuff like this belongs. Yeah, that's where the weird stuff happens. So that brings us basically to crabs as we know them today with the extreme global diversity. But as some of you may have noticed, there's a lot of quote-unquote crabs that we haven't mentioned. Yeah, I can think of a lot of crabs that we haven't talked about in this episode. And there's a reason we haven't gotten to them yet, because the term crab isn't just referring to Brachyura, it also refers to the shape of a crab. And there are lots of things shaped like crabs that are not in Brachyura, which brings us to the concept of carcinization, which we will talk about after the break. (laughs) We've talked about many evolutionary concepts here on the podcast, but I don't think we've ever talked about one so specific as carcinization. Evolving into a crab. The process of evolving to crab. That's basically what this term means. Yeah, Carson from crab, mm-hmm. C-A-R-C-I-N, carcinization, becoming like a crab. Yep. And there are more details there, which we will get into, but that's what this term means at its core. And originally, that is very much the way it was used. This term was originally coined in 1916 by an English zoologist named Lancelot Alexander Borodale who is quoted as describing it as one of the many attempts of nature to evolve crabs. <laughs> <laughs> this is just what nature wants to do. That That's what carcinization life, is. <laughs> life finds a way to become a crab. Yep. And now you see where all the memes <laughs> come from. Yeah, no, I get it. Well, it reminds me of trees. Yes. In episode 73, we talked about trees and how a tree isn't a 
group of plants. It is a way of being a plant. Yes. To become a tree. And that there are a lot of things that have become tree-like that aren't technically trees. Yes. And very similar to that, the process of carcinization typically follows the evolutionary process in that ancestrally, the group was more or less lobster-shaped with a long tail and longer body, and then evolves to a squat body, short-tailed crab shape. Uh, the ultimate form of the lobster. Yes. As all lobsters inexorably <laughs> are, are attracted to the shape of a crab. A never-ending march to crab. <laughs> so, typically the things that are associated with this are structures on the margins. You know, if you think of how crabs often have those spikes that come off to the side. Mm-hmm. So, more broad and compressed. From the long lobster shape to that puck disc shape of a crab. Yep. And then a big feature is is a reduction of the abdomen. The pleon, the tail of the lobster, is reduced in size, shortened extremely, and then often curved under the body. Over and over again. Over and over again. Weird. Yes. So this shape is, is a carcinized shape. And there are multiple examples. Depending on how you count it and how strict you are with the term, there are typically three to five often used examples of carcinized groups that all seem to be individual, separate lineages. And this is modern. Right. When you go into the fossil record, there are even examples there. Wow. So these are groups that are not within true crabs, mm-hmm. the Brachiura, but that have evolved crab bodies. Absolutely. All the modern ones are still decapods. Mm-hmm. And most, uh, basically all the examples you'll typically hear of are in the infraorder Anomura, which is a sister group to Brachiura in the Reptantia. So this is the, the big group that includes crabs and lobsters. The crab things tend to be showing up within that group. Yes. This is a sister group to the true crabs. The Anomura is famous for hermit crabs, king crabs, squat lobsters which, as the name suggests, are like a scrunched-up lobster. Kind of like a crab. Kind of crabish. They've still got very uh, longer cephalothorax and longer tail, but the tail's a little more curved, it's a little shorter, and the body's a little squatter. This is a very diverse group in and of themselves, but among their various lineages, we've gotten multiple crab-like organisms. So hermit crabs and king crabs are not crabs, but but they are imitation crabs. They are imitation crabs. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to be crabs. And in fact, king crabs are the go-to example. Yeah. They are the most popular, most often used. In fact, they're the origination of this concept, but not the term. Oh. This concept was first proposed in the 1880 by a researcher named as Boas. I didn't get the first name in the reference to them, but it was them describing the evolution of the king crab from hermit crab-like ancestors. Hmm. So for everyone, just make sure we all know, hermit crabs are those ones that hide in shells, their back half in shells, and carry snail shells around with them famously. Yep. Very, uh, very popular pets and also popular in cartoons. Yep. And king crabs just look like a crab... And are very famous for, like, those super dangerous fishing reality TV shows that Discovery oh, Channel yeah. like. Yeah. Like Alaskan king crabs. Very popular in restaurants. Is a king crab what Sebastian is supposed to be? I think I've heard that that's what he's supposed to be, but he's definitely not. Because hmm. king crabs almost look kind of like the spider crabs, where they're, like, long, spiny-limbed. Okay. That's kind of what I thought. Yeah. All right. They don't look like Sebastian at, at all. But 
this evolution of the king crabs was what sparked the idea of becoming crab-like. I love the idea of just a generation of scientists noticing this. Oh, hey, here's a lineage that evolved to be kind of like crabs. Oh, and also over here. And it starts to show up everywhere. And you have that image from the TV show where you just zoom in on their face. And there's (laughs) like transparent images. Like normally you'd have numbers and letters going around, but it's crabs. Yep. It's the the always sunny meme of the cork board with all (laughs) the string. Yep. Uh, And it's all crabs. Which... Is actually not too far off from the modern day discussion of carcinization. <laughs> That's true. So king crabs have a very crab-like body shape, almost indistinguishable at a glance. The only issue is that evolutionarily they are not in Brachyura. And they seem that they had hermit crab-like ancestors or evolved from hermit crabs. Like hmm. they may be, f- should be grouped there, some researchers say. And part of that evidence is hermit crabs often have asymmetrical abdomens to curl with the asymmetrical shape of a snail shell. That's awesome. Yeah. I did not know that. They curl the way the shell goes. And king crabs have asymmetrical shells. Mm. There's still some asymmetry to their anatomy that may be to that asymmetrical ancestry. Those are by far the most famous example of carcinization, but still within our same Anomura group, we have things like porcelain crabs, much smaller these typically range in size of 15 millimeters, so less than an inch. Nine sixteenths of an inch is what that yeah. comes out to. <laughs> but these also look extremely crab-like. They are thought to have a squat lobster-like ancestry. Okay. And they got their name from being very delicate. These are famous for detaching limbs when attacked. Oh, okay. To distract the predator and escape, which they will then regrow upon future molts. Uh, they have that... Uh, advantage over lizards who do it. Yep. But they've got that squat body. Uh, they're also usually very decorated. These are popular in aquariums, so they're very pretty. So Yeah, also they, like porcelain. Yep. They've got the the squat body. They've got two big clawed arms up front. But unlike how we typically think of most crabs using their claws, uh, they don't seem to use these to feed, or at least not for catching food. Those are mainly used for territorial struggles. Okay. So... Similar crab-like claws up front, but seems to be a slightly different use than your average crab. There are crabs that use their claws that way. Fiddler crabs that have the one big one. Mm -hmm. You know, the males use that for territorial, but they still feed with the small one. So that's kind of interesting. Interesting. And here we are not quite as seamlessly hiding among the crabs. There are some differences. These tend to have only three pairs of walking legs instead of the typical four. Mm, Imposters. The fourth is extremely reduced and held against the body. So they're there. They're just not using them to walk Strange. or swim or anything. They're, it seems, almost vestigial. And porcelain crabs have a long antennae coming out from the front, which is not common among crabs. Uh, some people may or may not realize, but yeah, crabs don't typically have long antennae. They're usually fairly short. Now that you mention it, that yeah, because you think of shrimp and lobsters mm-hmm. as having long antennae, but no, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yep. So these you can distinguish from being true crab by their anatomy, but it's still very crabby. Yeah. Still within the same group, we have the hairy stone crab. <laughs> I've heard of those. Which is named due to the for the discoverer Harry Stone. Harry Stone. <laughs> These look like hairy stones. They are covered in a brown hair-like structures that 
help them camouflage among the rocks. These are also typically very small, you know, one to two centimeters or two and a half centimeters. So just under an inch usually and are usually very slow moving. These, there's lots of debate of who they evolved from. Uh, they've been associated with porcelain crabs to have a similar ancestry to them. They've also been suggested to evolve from hermit crabs, okay. but then they've also been suggested to evolve from a separate group of freshwater anomurins, uh, separate from those two. So we're not sure where the story, hairy stone crab came from, but it does look quite crab-like, uh, less so than the previous two. This one is a little bit more, you know... Not it, as refined in not its as, crabbiness. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, we have the hermit crabs, which sometimes are counted in lists like this and sometimes aren't. If you actually take a hermit crab out of its shell, it doesn't look very crab-like. They've got a very long, soft-bodied abdomen to muscularly fit inside shells, mm -hmm. which doesn't look like a crab at all. It's got this big, like, prehensile spider monkey tail coming off the back. Uh, we don't usually see that. Right. The part we see looks like a crab. Yeah. But inside, they're not very crab-like. So sometimes I've seen them counted in lists. Other times, not. The one that does typically get counted is the coconut crab. Okay. That one does often get counted in lists of carcinization. The coconut crab, a terrestrial hermit crab, also known as the robber crab or palm thief, is famously the world's largest terrestrial arthropod, weighing up to... Four kilograms are nine pounds. Which is a hefty crab. Hefty crab. Well, hefty, not crab. <laughs> yes. And they can be up to one meter or three feet in length from leg tip to leg tip. Yeah, if they stretch out, basking in the sun. These are found throughout islands in the Indian and Pacific Ocean and are hermit crabs, but the adults don't use the shell. They have a hardened, shortened tail that is curled up to the body. In a very crab-like fashion. Okay, so they're crab-like crab as adults. Yes, the young still use shells, which I didn't know. Oh, interesting. Yeah, young coconut crabs are just normal hermit crabs until they reach adulthood and then they get big and beefy and awesome. Yeah. Now, uh, earlier I mentioned Sebastian, which is a Little Mermaid reference, to make another Disney reference. Yep. Uh, coconut crab is what Tamatoa is, isn't yes, it? absolutely. From Moana. Yes. So that's why... He doesn't have a big shell on his back. He's just got a big flat back where he put all the stuff. Yeah, and it is also why he doesn't does not call himself a crab. He calls himself a decapod. Yes. Right there in the song. Yep, look it up. Look it up. Now, funnily enough with their name, just quick well, fun facts. He actually does call himself a crab. Yeah, he does. At one point, yeah. I'm thinking through the lyrics. and yeah. Okay, he also calls himself a crab. He, he also compares himself to Sebastian. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's true. Yeah, he, he does. Continue. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll tweet at Jermaine Clement and be yep. like, listen, pal. It's shoddy work. <laughs> now, as their name suggests, uh, they are typically fruit eaters, mm -hmm. eating vegetation fruit, but they'll eat just about anything. They got their name Robber Crab because if you, one article said if you leave it on the beach, it's fair game. They're like seagulls. Yep. Uh, that's why the famous picture of one trying to get into a trash can and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but they actually have not been observed cracking open coconuts or actively harvesting them off the tree or anything. Okay. Even though their range roughly matches up with palm tree uh, locations, and they have been seen eating coconuts. They haven't been seen going after and trying to open them just okay. when they've been opened. Uh, so coconut crab is more just uh, anything on the beach crab. I like to think that it means that that's how they taste. <laughs> yes. That sounds great. It's full of milk. Coconut plus crab. Oh, <laughs> oh man, I'm in heaven. 
There are other uh, members in the hermit crab that are considered to be very carcinized. A small, deep water hermit crab known as Patagurus rex, <laughs> which is itty bitty bitty, has a much more crab-like body compared to your average hermit crab, not carrying a shell and anything like that. I've also seen some lists that have included things uh, like slipper lobsters, which are not in this group. They are in the group Echilata, which are like squat little lobsters, uh, very lobster shaped, but with a much shorter tail typically. Uh, but they don't often have like the big claws up front, but they do have a slightly more compressed, broader body. So some people have pointed at them as maybe being carcinized, but not, I don't see them listed regularly. And those are... Most of the modern examples, but there are fossil examples. Of course. Separate from any of these and separate from decapods. Ooh. Maybe even separate from crustaceans. Ooh, weird. This is an order called Cyclida, which are prehistoric, air quotes, crabs. These are arthropods for sure. Whether or not they are in crustacean is probably... But not for sure. <laughs> but, but not for sure. So these may not even be crustaceans. Ooh. These are known throughout the Mesozoic and are typically very small, six centimeters, two and a half inches, little things. But they have very crab-like morphologies and so much so that they are thought to probably be filling a similar role to crabs. Now, originally they thought they went extinct at the end of the Triassic due to the showing up of true crabs. Oh, gotcha. But more recent findings have found both Jurassic and Cretaceous members, which oh. shows that they actually overlapped with true crabs. They were hanging out alongside crabs. Yeah. Were these where this was this where true crabs got their inspiration? Which is the interesting point here. That means they evolved a crab-like, quote-unquote, body shape before true crabs uh, came into the playing field. The true, true, truest crabs. Yeah. The ur-crab. <laughs> the proto-crabs. <laughs> Which I think beautifully brings us to one of the biggest questions about carcinization. Why? I'm so confused. <laughs> La I've been, the whole time I've been thinking this. Last episode, when we were talking about ichthyosaurs in 116, we discussed how many different groups have evolved fish-like bodies. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, makes total intuitive sense. You have a hydrodynamic torpedo-shaped body and a strong tail and fins for maneuvering. We've talked in the past about how it has repeatedly been seen in animals to evolve a worm-like or snake-like body. Yes. Right? Long body for maneuvering through your environment or for burrowing or something. And that makes some sense to me. The shape of rodents, the shape of flying things. Th that all seems to me like, yeah, no, that seems like the shape you'd want to be. What in the world is it about being the shape of a crab? Yeah, why is a tailless face hugger? Why is that... <laughs> useful what mm. why is that such a good body shape i feel like if i'm thinking of it from the perspective of aliens coming down here and going yeah no that fish that biomechanically yes that makes perfect sense flying things absolutely no biomechanical why are these so common yep, yep. who did they pay off to get all of this ecological space yeah and there's a lot of discussion about that Spoilers, I've given the answer away when I mentioned aliens. <laughs> Crabs in space. space! There's a couple of things I saw mentioned as to why being shaped like a crab could be beneficial as compared to being shaped like a lobster. Because mm -hmm. that's really, we have those two famous walking body shapes for decapods. And 
we consistently see the evolutionary trend of going from a lobster shape to a crab shape. And there are a few things that that might help with. One, it hides your tail. True. Which could mean it's protecting it from predators. Right, protecting it. Also, I imagine it would make you less noticeable. There's less of you visible. Absolutely. And you don't have this weakness potentially flopping around behind you. Absolutely. And that's another thing is that it could make it better once you squat your body up like that to fit within crevices and rock out of croppings and oh, hide more easily. That's a good point. So it potentially protects the tail. It also might add more mobility. Uh, lobsters typically walk straight forward and not really side to side. Mm-hmm. They're very in line with their body. Whilst crabs can move forward, side to side, backwards, uh, swim. and like They are a, a bit more mobile, maybe. Yeah. And so squatting the body up and centering it between all the legs might let you move around in more ways or more efficiently. Yeah, I guess that it does make sense that a lot of fictional robots and vehicles that you see in like cartoons and comic books are crab or spider shaped more so than lobster shaped. Yeah. Let's you climb around on stuff. Exactly. Now, not all of these things are definite benefits. Uh, Shortening the tail might hide it from predators, but it also gets rid of that fancy escape maneuver that lobsters and shrimp have to quickly curl your tail in and shoot off in a backwards direction. True. So you do lose that, but there could be some definite benefits to being shaped like a crab compared to a lobster. Okay. Potentially. All right. Makes some sense. Now this leads us to an assumption that is often made and thrown around when carcinization is discussed, which is that, well then obviously the crab form is the most evolutionarily successful one. Oh, yeah, this is peak evolution. This is peak evolution. This is peak decapod. Yep. That obviously, since we keep seeing it happen from differently related groups... This must be it. All roads lead to crab. That this is the ultimate answer, which raises the question, are crabs more evolutionarily successful? <laughs> are crabs inevitable? Yes, exactly. <laughs> And it can seem that way, especially since Brachyura is the most diverse group of decapods, one of the most the most diverse group of crustaceans, mm-hmm. and has dominated the planet. For like a hundred million years. It can sure seem like, yeah, no, that seems to be, if you're a crab, you're ahead of the game. You got it made. But there are some facts that sort of point out that not necessarily. Uh the other non-crab-shaped groups are still very diverse. Mm-hmm. And I saw one paper that brought up the question of, is diversity really the only measure for evolutionary success? Like, there are widespread but not diverse groups, like crayfish, yeah. which are all over the place but not as diverse as true crabs. Right. Also, humans. Yes. All over the place. Clearly successful, but we, you know... We're one species. One species. Not a lot of diversity in one species. There's also the point brought up of long-standing body forms, which is often shown as a lack of evolution. Right. But could Episode be... 90. Yeah. But it could be seen as evolutionary success. Lobsters have looked like lobsters for a very long time. Because it works. Because it works. Yeah. So is well, that we, not successful? And, and we've talked about the idea every now and then of stabilizing selection. The idea that you are under natural selective pressures to keep even while various aspects of your life your anatomy your behavior change it is advantageous for you to keep 
some of those basics. That basic body shape is good. Yes. Well, it's it's. I uh, recently we both took our cars to the shop. I have a little old Ford that was not driven much by the people who had it before I got it. So it was. It's a 2007. It was old, but it has almost no use on it. So every time I take it to the shop, they'll notice the age, and I'll be like, "All right, so is anything wrong with it?" And they'll go, "No." <laughs> no, it's doing what it what it was built to do. Yeah, so I don't get any extra work done on it because they tell me that it's doing fine. So it's if it's working, why change it? There's also the point to be made of whilst species diversity, number of species could be one way to look at success, which then true crabs have everyone else beat. Diversity of forms could also be seen as success. Right. Disparity. Disparity, which under that measure would mean Anomura, the hermit crab group, is way more disparate than the true crab group because they've got all sorts. They've got hermit crabs, king crabs, porcelain crabs, squat lobsters, which are way, those don't even look similar. Mm -hmm. So can we say that the reason things keep becoming crabs is because being a crab is just better? Not really. That's not a definite answer for why it keeps happening. Right, right. There could, there are, there are all sorts of possible reasons why you might be selected for something. I might, it might be beneficial in certain contexts, but that doesn't necessarily mean it is the best way to be. Yes. You know, we've talked in the past about how there are certain traits that are obviously beneficial, but that don't show up very often, like flight, mm -hmm. right? Flight has evolved four times, even though that's clearly a really useful thing to have. It might just be that it's hard to evolve. You could imagine the flip side of that, things that aren't necessarily the best, they're not necessarily better, but it's really easy to find yourself evolving down that path. Absolutely. Also, just as a side note to saying that crab's the ultimate form, uh, talking about the disparity of the hermit group, there is one just quick throwaway line in one of the articles that I had to pursue that talked about, you know, that we have evidence of hermit crabs using gastropod shells, you know, snail shells to protect themselves, going all the way back to the late Cretaceous. Mm -hmm. But before that, we do have at least a couple of specimens that have been found that were using ammonite shells. <gasps> <laughs> I, I repeat, <gasps> that's so cool. That makes a ton of sense. Right? And I never thought about that. And it means they weren't asymmetrical hermit crabs. They were symmetrical hermit crabs. Ah, <laughs> uh, because cephalopod shells are symmetrical. Yep. <gasps> they don't corkscrew off to one side. They just spiral. Oh my good. What? Artists. Yep. Where I, I feel like the paleo art community has failed me by not showing me images of ancient hermit crabs and ammonite shells. Right? Which I just have to say... If evolving to crab means evolving away from that, then can we really say it's superior? Yeah, no, that's a real downgrade. <laughs> You've really let yourselves go. Yeah. Now, I do not have, I was not able to find or come up with a definite answer for why crabs. Right. That doesn't surprise me. I don't, I suspect we don't know. No, but part of this discussion, all, all, but another aspect of this discussion that I did come across multiple times is the issues with the discussion around carcinization. This concept of multiple things evolving to crab-like forms leads us to the question of, well, what is the definition of a crab? 
Right. How do you define crab? What counts as a crab-like form and what counts as a crab? How strictly and in what ways are we defining crab-like? Right. Because there's two meanings to the word crab. The true crabs, the taxonomic meaning for Brachyura, or the descriptive term crab, meaning crab-like shape. Right. Which it kind of reminds me of snakes. Mm -hmm. Like the word snake can refer to snakes, the actual group Serpentes. But snake is also a way to describe a way something looks or moves, mm-hmm. right? To snake through the grass or something like that. And one article I found emphasized that when discussing carcinization, you can't confuse those two terms. Yes. You have to, def- what do you mean by crab right now? The group or the shape, because depending on how you define the shape of crab, not all crabs are crabs. Right. <laughs> And that's another issue that often comes up is that the definition can be very vague. Who should fit into it? Do hermit crabs really fit? Mm-hmm. Are they crab-like enough? Uh, the description that we gave earlier of squat-bodied, short tail, you know, broad body is often as much description as you get. Yeah. But that's very vague. Yeah, it's a very general anatomy. So I have found a couple that gave more specific definitions one described a carcinized body form being one that has a carapace, the main body, that is flatter than it is broad and has lateral margins, so things on the side. Sternites that are fused, sternites being the sections on the underside, the ventral portion of arthropods. These are like the little sections on the abdomen of a beetle or something mm-hmm. that are fused into a plastron, a wide underbelly plastron and a pleon the tail the abdomen that is flattened and strongly bent and from the top view dorsally viewed basically hidden right underneath the body that you can't see it from up top except for like the last couple of sections and that it partially or completely covers that plastron mentioned before under this definition things like hermit crabs don't really count right even the coconut crab doesn't really fit this well enough Mm. A lot of other crabby things starts getting a little bit more, eh, you kind of fit it, but not really. Which also leads to the question of, okay, well, if you kind of fit it, but not really, can you be partially carcinized? Yes. Can you be semi-carcinized? So a little bit crab? And I found lots of times partly carcinized or half carcinized, a term that would be used for things like hermit crabs or squat lobsters, which seem to be kind of halfway between the full lobster and full crab shape huh. that they are half carcinized. You're getting toward crabbiness, but you're not there yet. You haven't reached complete carcinization right. to full crab. This also leads to the concept of hyper carcinization <laughs> to extra crab, which has been used on king crabs because they even show similar sexual dimorphism in the shape of their pleon underneath oh, with males okay. and females having differently shaped abdomens that's very extreme convergence yes extremely convergent is exactly what they mean by that but there are some people who have brought up issue with this concept of partial of a range of carcinization Mm -hmm. because that seems to kind of suggest that there's a goal yes that the goal is crab and that's not how evolution works just because i have crab-like features doesn't mean i eventually will become crab right So some people don't like using it that way. They think you either are or aren't. 
you are carcinized, you have those previous descriptions, mm-hmm. or you aren't. You can have some of them, but that means you're not carcinized. You yeah. have carcinized traits, but not carcinized. It's an interesting discussion because it makes me wonder how much of it is that we like the idea of saying that things evolve to crabs. Yeah. Like, because right off the bat, the idea of carcinization as a term, that there being a term that means evolving a crab-like shape is very cool. Yes. That's a very cool specific term, but it also kind of makes me think, well, okay, but we don't have a term like that for fish. Yes. Which also have seen a very similar trend in evolution. There's a lot of body forms that show up over and over again, and we don't designate a term and so because we don't designate a term it doesn't like i've never heard a discussion of oh well is is this thing partially fishified you know we talked about how ichthyosaurs are extremely convergent with fish more so than some things like mosasaurs or plesiosaurs which are also in some ways convergent with fish is it how much of this discussion is just that someone put a name on it and now we're arguing about how to apply that term. Exactly. And and the defining the term crab, like what counts as a crab, has become much more blurred when you look into it from this point of view. Because now we have things that are carcinized but aren't crabs. Mm-hmm. Uh, or are they, you know, are they crabs because they're carcinized? You know, there's also those examples of things that are called crab that aren't carcinized. Right. Like horseshoe crabs. Which are not at all like crabs. No, don't look like a crab remotely, except for that they've got more than two legs. Yeah, <laughs> that's an arthropod, but beyond that... Yeah, way away, not even in crustacea. And then you get things like pubic lice, which are called crabs, because they've got <laughs> little claws. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, well, because... And, it, it, we, and we've talked about this before. I'll go back to fish. We've talked about this in the context... Of things like fish, where you get this conflict between the way a word is used technically, academically, and the way it is used colloquially. You know, the, the way that, oh yeah, no, we point at stuff and call it fish. Yes. That's a fish, that's a fish, that's a fish. Whereas if we actually want to use that term in a academic sense, it needs to have a solid definition we can all agree on. Crab is another one of those that, yeah, for hundreds of years, people have just been pointing at arthropods and calling them crabs. Yeah. And that makes it very confusing when we're trying to define. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, no, it scuttles. Which, yeah, makes it very confusing for us uh, to try to identify, all right, well, what is our technical term? Is it like snake, where that is a specific group of life, or is it like tree? where it is a form that life can take rather than being a specific taxonomic group. Exactly. And I think the best example of why it's such a messy concept and why it ne- we need to be specific about how we're using that word is because going by the definition of a carcinized form, if we take it as a your end state, you know, how you are, because technically, if it's an evolutionary process, you could be carcinized without ever reaching a crab state. Right. Because you got some, you got more crab-like, well, then you were carcinized, just a, not... A little. A little, yeah, just yeah. a little. But if we take it as you are carcinized because you're shaped like a crab, broad, flatter than broad, 
thorax, short tail tucked under the body, covering your hard plastron. Mm-hmm. Then that means there are true crabs that aren't crabs. Right. That aren't crab-shaped. They aren't carcinized. There are members of the true crab group that have evolved into non-crab-like shapes. They have decarcinized. <laughs> decarcinization. Yeah, yeah. And that's happened multiple times. We've already discussed one. Cali Chimera Perplexa, that weird swimming one from the Cretaceous, was a true crab that is not carcinized. It's not crabby. It is extremely different. The eyes are bulbous and not on stalks. Their swimming legs are up front instead of in the back. Mm-hmm. They've got a longer body and a short tail that's not curled under the body. That's not a crab-like shape. Well, and it, to bring it back to fish again, because it's a really good comparison, I think, we I, I was describing the fish shape, and we talked last episode about how ichthyosaurs are called fish reptiles mm-hmm. because they are shaped like fish, even though that's not what all fish are shaped like. Yeah. Like, only some fish are shaped that like eels are fish and seahorses are fish. And like, frogfish and batfish. There's all sorts of things that are fish that aren't the classic shape of a tuna or a goldfish. And indeed, as we discussed last episode, even the so-called fish reptiles are not all shaped like a tuna. A bunch of them were shaped like eels and other stuff. So it's very difficult to pick a body shape and say this shape characterizes this term or this group because you're always going to get that variation and differentiation between different groups. Well, and probably my favorite example of just messing with the word crab and (laughs) this concept of convergent evolution is there's a group of true crabs, the frog crabs, the Ronanidae. That's awesome. (laughs) Right? Which are not carcinized. They are very tall-bodied. Like, their cephalothorax, instead of being flattened, kind of stands upward. Their tail is not tucked under their body. So they have this elongated cephalothorax, carapace, and untucked tail, which are two of the big things that you're not supposed to do Mm -hmm. if you're going to be crab-shaped. And it's adaptation for burrowing. For them to burrow down in the sand and then have their faces stick up as they grab food. Oh, gotcha. And the reason this is so fascinating to me is they are, are convergent with a different group of decapods, the hippoidae or mole crabs, <laughs> <laughs> which are not true crabs, but also have an elongated carapace and cephalothorax and untucked tail and also burrow into the sand and are very, very similar looking but neither are crab-shaped, but one is a true crab and one is not. <laughs> and they're both called crabs. Yes. B- b- bizarre. It's So I love that because it's still convergent evolution, but away from the crab form to a different non-crab form. Yes, to a different type of crab form. Yes. And so th- though the concept is super interesting and fun, actually how we define it gets really messy. Like, what is a crab? Yeah. <laughs> is a question that is much harder to answer than it seems like on the surface. That's, I, I, this is such a cool topic because this episode has taken a wonderful trajectory because it starts with, let's talk about what crabs are. And then it goes into, there's some diversity in crabs. And then it's, there's a bunch of things that we call crabs because they're similar to crabs because evolution keeps producing crabs. But also there's stuff we call crabs that are not at all like crabs. 
And also the evolution producing crabs thing also produces stuff that isn't like crabs. Some of which are actual crabs. Yes. So like, should we call king crabs crabs because they're carcinized and then stop calling frog crabs crabs because they're not carcinized? Right. Or should we stop calling king crabs crabs because they're not Brachyura? Yeah. <laughs> this is that we've got. This is a whole big philosophical discussion that I didn't expect to come from talking about crabs. Me neither. Going through the notes, I just came across paper after paper that was like, also let's let's go over all the issues <laughs> with defining crab. I found the question, what is a crab, multiple times as a title card to a paragraph. That's great. Well, and I think that it's a lot of, it's funny because it is a demonstration of how invested we get in terminology. Yes. And for good reason, right? Terminology is very important. Uh, When you are writing a scientific paper, if you're discussing things in the scientific literature or in the scientific community, you want to know that when you say a word, all the other scientists are pretty close to understanding what you mean. It's like using a serial number for something so that when I say the model, make, and year of a car, there's no vagueness about what vehicle I'm talking about specifically. Right. We need to be on the same page. And so when terms become popular in their use, either or both in colloquial speech and in academic uh, discussions, it can get very muddled because it becomes very popular to use these terms without actually having a clear definition of what they mean, which then leads to confusion. And then you get people reading papers getting frustrated going, well, this person uses this term and those people use this term and they seem to be referring to different things. Yeah, well, it's, it's why the easiest fun fact when we were bringing out the hermit crabs to meet people was that the fact that they're not crabs. Yeah. Well, and then and, and, and what will happen and you see this over and over again in science is eventually someone gets fed up with it and writes a paper that says, let's define this term. Yep. And in a case like this, you have multiple times that people have sat down and tried to go, all right, hang on, everybody stop. What do these words mean? What does crab mean in a technical sense? What does carcinization mean in a technical sense? So we can be on the same page. Yes, absolutely. It's it's fascinating. And it's like, this is a whole different topic. But it even happens with the squat lobsters aren't lobsters. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. But it's kind of lobstery. And I know lobster quickly than I know whatever this new thing is. Yeah. So it's this group, because it's so vast and diverse, it is really crazy how messy it gets when you try to use simple definitions. It gets it gets real complicated real fast. And with that, I think we're about at the end of our crab discussion. For now. For now. <laughs> maybe we'll return to crabs in the future. Maybe maybe this podcast is also on an inexorable path to crab. Once we have carcinized, we Just will... <laughs> slowly, over time, more and more episodes become about crabs. Crab <laughs> Toward the end of an episode that you thought started about ichthyosaurs, but by the end of it, it was crabs. Crab people. <laughs> but before we wrap up completely... We do have one last section, which is a Patreon question. That's true. We have a Patreon, as we mentioned earlier on, and patrons get goodies, as we mentioned early on. And one of those goodies is you get to ask questions for us to answer here on the podcast. And since we are just got off this lovely philosophical discussion about evolutionary paths, we've got a patron question. 
that poses a philosophical question about evolutionary paths. This is a speculative question, which people do like asking us from time to time. Which makes me so happy. This one comes from Jacob, who posits the following scenario and follow-up question. The amniotic egg never evolves. (gasps) Neither does any form of analog that could accomplish the same purpose. What happens? Ooh, so to explain the scenario and remind everyone, amniotic eggs are what you think of when you think of chicken eggs, reptile eggs. These are the shelled, the hard shelled or or tougher shelled eggs that allowed our ancestors to stop having to lay their eggs in the water and to lay them on dry ground and move away from from our reproduction being tied to the water. Right. Among vertebrates, the amniotic egg is the difference between fish and amphibians on one end and reptiles, birds, and mammals on the other. So what if we never developed this waterproof egg? What if we never developed any waterproof egg? Anything that, that, that has that internal protected environment that can exist in the absence of water. Yes. Because fish, amphibians, and basically all of the invertebrates are laying eggs in some form of water. So the first idea that came to me when I saw this is if there's if no analog, no other similar type of structure. Right. Because that's that's an important caveat, because if they hadn't added that caveat, the answer would be, oh, yeah, something else would have come along. Yeah. You know, the, the you know, arthropods already had, you know, yeah, come up with waterproof eggs. So something like that. But if that doesn't happen, the first thing that came to my mind would be live birth. I was just thinking that maybe things would have moved towards live birth. Gotten rid of the egg altogether. And that would have been an avenue to move deeper into uh, continental territories. I also, it occurs to me that there are lots of animals today that have found clever workarounds. So the extreme example that comes to mind are like bromeliad frogs. Yep. Which lay their eggs in plants that hold water. Yep. So there are ways to, yeah, you can follow rivers and you can follow lakes and still be able to lay your eggs because there's some form of water around. Well, and you have those frogs that let the eggs brood in their stomach. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, so if you just become the environment for them, you know, I could see that happening. It's the same, similar as the, um, is it the clawed frog? I can't remember the, the name of it. The one that hides its eggs in its back. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the back grows around them. Well, if you just sealed your back over the eggs or had a, a pouch or something that would carry the eggs, now you can take them out of the water because you're taking the water with you. Yeah. There are a lot of groups of non-amniotes that have evolved strategies for not having to deal with eggs. Yes. So, like, fish have evolved live birth many, many times. Frogs have evolved these strategies you're talking about. So you might not need, I I, I don't, I'm very hesitant to say that the amniotic egg was required to dominate the land. No. I think it's what happened to do it. Yes. Like that happened, it it came about and it happened to, to form that great advantage for animals to then move into mountains and deserts and farther on land and away from the water. But it's not the only strategy to do it. Yeah, so I think live birth is definitely a big option that you would see. Uh, I don't know how that would affect lineages down the line. Like, you know, I assume that reptilian-like features would still have come around because those are more in response to the environment than the kind of egg you're laying. Well, it does raise the question of what it means for birth strategies. Yes. So one of the greatest benefits of eggs 
is that you don't have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. You lay a bunch of eggs and you move on with your life. But if you have to carry them in your belly or carry them on your back or give live birth a la mammals and, and, and the reptiles that do it, that's a significant more investment of time and energy for the parent, for the mother who has to either carry the eggs around or carry the, the embryo inside during live, during, during pregnancy. So I suspect if we aren't using eggs to get on land, it's asking a lot more. Yeah of mothers to take care of those eggs, which might limit uh, what the animals are able to do during their lifetime. It might limit the size of litters. Yes, exactly. that's what I was going to say is like, one of the big benefits to eggs is that I can lay a dozen of them and then all mom has to do is sit on those eggs and protect them. Yeah. She's not feeding them. She's not nurturing them with her body anymore. And not even always that. Mm -hmm. Like if you're in insects are able to reproduce in huge numbers because, yeah, they're just laying eggs and leaving. Yep, just sitting on this leaf and that goodbye. Yep. So if you get rid of that, we very likely the energy efficient solution, if you're raising it out of the egg, is to have fewer so that you're putting your time and energy into more surefire chances. Yeah. So litter sizes could go down, uh, which is a much more mammalian lifestyle right. you know birds we see that mm -hmm. in as well uh that they are having even though birds lay eggs birds and mammals are both well known for having generally smaller batches of babies so we might see earlier invaders of the land living lifestyles that are more comparable to the ones we see in small litter sized yeah. animals or something and we probably see a lot more parental care yes because now you have to take care because your, your strategy now is either to extend a pregnancy until it, the, the baby is ready to go right off the bat. Yep. Or have lots of babies early and then you have to take care of them. Yep. Which both strategies we see among birds and mammals. We also made the point last episode that uh, at the end of the ichthyosaurs episode that it has been suggested that giving live birth might be an evolutionary prerequisite sometimes for moving into aquatic habitats. Yes, absolutely. So maybe we would to, to extrapolate way down the line, maybe we'd see more returns to the water. Yeah, secondarily, aquatic groups might have been become might have become more common. Yeah, more feasible. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I like this eggless world that we're developing. Yeah, it, this is one of those where it's it's interesting because it seems like such a potentially minor shift, but mm -hmm. it could have massive effects on even which groups made it onto land. Like, yeah. This could absolutely shift if the, you know, Liz Amphibia ancestors uh, didn't make that transition easily. A live bearing group of fish that was more ready to start coming on land might have been, we could have had a whole different ancestry. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Cool. Cool question. Thanks for asking. Yeah. And with that, we can wrap up this episode. As usual, if you have any questions or comments, you can contact us in all the usual ways. Let us know your favorite crab or not crab. Please do. Because I want to see that list. Thanks again to our requesters and our new patrons. Yes, and even our old patrons. And all of our patrons. Thank you to all our listeners. Be sure to check out the blog post after this episode and every episode with additional links and information and pictures. We release episodes every fortnight, so stay tuned for more. 
all this episode, I've been, uh, I, I don't have a joke, but I have a punchline. <laughs> the punchline is Johnny Carsonization. <laughs> if I knew more of his songs, I'd help you out. <laughs> so fill in your own joke there. That yep. one's for free. Yep. This is, this is like, this is like, uh, cards against humanity. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There you go. I will provide all the punchlines or in case no one was familiar with it, the off brand knockoff of that game, crabs adjust humidity, which does is exist. That a thing? That's a thing. Wow. It's, I was going to say, I'm real impressed that you thought that no, up. It's, it's an unofficial ex- expansion crabs of the game. Adjust humidity. So it's still the same. Wow. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> Bye. Bye, everybody. Crab. Crab people. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.